Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's turn to markets. Seema Shaw with us in London here, the chief strategist for uh, the Principal Global Investors Group. Thrilled that she could be with us. I, I love your note because it's short and right to the point. And Seema, you have some wonderful phrases that I need you to explain to our audience across America and worldwide. I love the idea of the vertigo of equities. This isn't uh, Alfred Hitchcock, is it? What is equity vertigo for next year? So what it means, Tom, is we are expecting equities to continue to rise next year, really inflated by central bank easing, not really inflated by very strong economics. Mm-hmm. And as they continue to rise and those valuations become more and more expensive and disconnected from weak economics, it means that you're going to get to the point where investors are getting increasingly scared of the heights of equities. Now, that's not mean to say that we expect an equity market correction next year, but we are certainly getting closer with that vertigo right. and people start to feel a bit sick. Is it? A bubble. Is it by definition, I think of Steve Roach, the legend from Morgan Stanley now at Yale or even Chairman Bernanke. You know, I hate this phrase, but it works here. Is it on the edge of bubble territory? I think there's a fair number of people who would say that. I would say, however, that you have got the prospect of economics catching up. So it's not a done deal that the bubble will continue to inflate, 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 right. but you could get economics catching up with it. But at this stage, certainly valuations are very expected, but they will be continue to be supported by central banks. So I want to go someplace else. Is the shift to international? Is the shift to stay with U.S. big cap something that worked this year? Is it a year of stick with what works or is it a year of shifting to new ideas? So it's a little bit of both. You stick with some of the stuff that has worked really well, such as mega caps, as you said. Some of the defensive areas like real estate, we also continue to like. But also, as we go into next year, there's going to be increasing opportunities, which will be important because investors need to have a stake in the upside, which we do think there will be opportunities for. I look at uh, the rest of your note. And and again, what's so great about it is it's, it's really brief. But you talk about risk velocity. You talk about I, I guess, what is this, a quickening of risk? Yeah, what it is, you know, we, we tend to look talk about the number of risks out there, but we never think about how quickly it transitions to portfolios. So that's what we're expecting next year. There's a number of different factors, but at least from this perspective, governments and political interference and a number of things we've been seeing increasing over the next two, last two years. And we expect that to continue as governments take a larger role than central banks have. And then you see a lot of the risks, such as a trade war, eventually transitioning to the portfolios very quickly. Seema, uh, Lisa over here in New York, and one thing when we're talking about bubbles, I have to say uh, it's not all stocks because there have been certain stocks that have been beaten up. The stocks that resemble bonds or do best when bonds are rallying. Uh, Some people are concerned that the valuations there have gotten uh, incredibly inflated. I'm talking about utilities or or real estate uh, investment trusts. How concerned are you about a massive uh, drawdown, a massive sell-off in those particular stocks? I mean, I think it is a concern. And I think that as we see those valuations, that disconnect between some which are extremely overvalued, which are some which are relatively cheap by history, if you do get that very technical shift, you could see a very, very sharp move. So almost that risk velocity coming through very sharply in a number of the areas that have performed extremely well. And you've named a couple there, such as utilities. Seymour, I'm just wondering who's participated in this particular rally this year. The Wall Street Journal out with a fascinating article yesterday referring to some data from Refinitiv Lipper that said investors have pulled 100 $135.5 billion from U.S. stock-focused mutual funds and ETFs so far this year, the biggest withdrawals on record. Seema, 
who's been in the market to take advantage of this? You know, when we talk to investors, actually, even looking back to the first quarter of this year, when there were still a lot of concerns, the first question we would get from investors was, when can I put my money back to work? They were desperate. So as soon as there were any indications to come in, that's when people started ploughing in. And we've seen movement from um, some, from hedge, hedge funds. There's been a lot of the momentum trading and a lot of the ETFs as well playing on this on this game. Well, this is a really important idea. I thought Cliff Asnes quoted in Zero Hedge yesterday uh, was brilliant about the cliche, there's money on the sidelines. Is there money? He tore it to shreds. Is there money on the sidelines? I, I think there is. You know, from our perspective, as long as you don't see a recession on the horizon, you should be invested in risk assets. Of course, you should protect on, your, on the downside and the defensive space. And that's exactly why defensives, especially in equities, have performed so well this year, is that people want to put their money to work. Now, there were some who didn't get back in on the rally at the beginning of the year when equities really bottomed. Um, and so for those people, they didn't put it in cash, but they just waited, desperate to put it back into work. They're desperate. I mean, do you sense that desperation right now? I mean, we're up 20. I haven't even looked, John. I've been so busy over here. Arsenal last night against West Ham. OMG, that was exciting. Did you watch okay. that game? I watched it. I went to it. Uh, the S&P 500 up 25% so far this year. And you're telling me people are dying on the sidelines to get in? Well, not necessarily equities, because as you said, they are extremely overvalued. But there are, you know, people want to get something for their money. Where am I going to get that something? That's the money question. Right yeah, now. absolutely. So the couple, the couple of areas that we really like for next year is emerging market debt. Now, that hasn't performed as well as the rest of the equity right. space or the fixed income space. And we think that the macro fundamentals for next year do look pretty good. The same thing with stuff like preferred securities, COCOs. They are looking really good. They have um, the banking sector has been beaten up in a number of parts right, of the world, right. but they are protected by government. So that's another upside. But we also really like some of the illiquid assets, specifically private real estate. Seema, thank you so much. Seema Shah, just wonderful with a really, I, I love it. I get these 50 page 2020 things. Who's got time to read that? Thank you uh, so much. With Principal Global Investors, five themes that will shape uh, the markets. And now the most frustrating guest we have in all of Bloomberg's surveillance, because when the journalist John Fenby walks in the door with his prolific writing, you don't know what to talk about. Should we talk about France we and his classic one volume on France? Should we talk about his new effort, Crucible, about the, uh, coming out of World War II, or the new edition of your classic Penguin book on China? Lisa Bramwitz said, go there. So that's what we're going to do. Okay. Uh, on China... We have a President Xi. Is it a fallback to Mao? Is the new leadership of China a redux of Mao? It's not a redux to Mao in terms of ideology and so on. He still believes in uh, the, the, the reforms, the economic reforms post Deng, Deng Xiaoping, but he believes in the kind of power and the power centralization which we had uh, under Mao. So it's, it's a a return in terms of how China is run from the very top, but not necessarily in all the details of how it's run. There are three or four people that have had the courage to write on all of China, like you have, of course, the giant Jonathan Spence and, yeah. and you, Mr. Fenby, as well. Within writing on China is the response of the rest of the world. How do you synthesize President Trump's response to China? To his China. 
For his China, it's uh, very erratic, I'd say, uh, is the phrase. What we don't have from the United States is a coherent policy towards China, whereas Xi Jinping uh, is pretty coherent. I'm not a great fan for the idea that China always sets things in very, very long-term planning, but they are doing that vis-a-vis Trump at the moment. I had the clearest memories of being in Hong Kong with uh, Governor Chang the day the WTO began Mm. to splinter apart. Now we're really talking about the end of that multilateral experiment. How critical is it that we see, how crucial is it rather that we see the WTO drift away? Well, uh, China likes likes the WTO uh, and the danger if you get into a series of bilateral uh, arrangements on trade uh, rather than having an overarching organization like the WTO is that China will make an awful lot of deals around the world using its economic clout uh, quite nakedly uh, to gain political influence. Jonathan, uh, given your vast experience in China and with China, I'd love your perspective on a question that Jonathan Farrow has been asking all morning, which is a really good question. Is the silence that we've been hearing around the December 15th tariffs a good thing or a bad thing in terms of them actually reaching some sort of accord? It shows, I think, that they are down to very serious negotiation at the moment. Uh, This is less the negotiation by tweet uh, and silence from the Chinese side. And uh, it's more a sign that uh, they are getting down to real nitty gritty uh, elements here. And that uh, involves, of course, increased Chinese purchases of American goods, particularly agriculture. But also it will require some indication from the U.S. side that they're willing to to consider tariff rollbacks or further delays in tariffs to keep the Chinese happy. Another big question sort of overhanging all of these negotiations is who has more to lose? And there was data coming out overnight about China's consumer inflation accelerating to a seven-year high in November. This largely rides in the back of higher pork prices. But you see factory prices declining. This raises the specter of stagflation, of a concern for uh, the PBOC, what they are going to do in order to juice growth without uh, causing a sort of hyperinflation that, that impedes the economy. How should we view this? How concerned is is the PBOC at this point? Uh, It is pretty concerned, I think, and its uh, traditional transition uh, mechanisms aren't working uh, as well as they used to. And you have a leadership uh, in Beijing which doesn't want to go for the old-fashioned stop-go big stimulus packages that we've seen since 2008. They want a more managed, more stable uh, economy, and they're trying to do this in the middle of the trade war, and that's difficult. Uh, And we can't let you go without a discussion of Crucible. You write prolifically, uh, Jonathan Fenby. Crucible is about a time that seems so important right now. Is it the end of World War Two? It's the end of World War Two, and it's the really the emergence of the new world system, both uh, through the U.S. involvement in the world and lots and lots of other things happening all across the globe. What's the distinction there? I mean, I, I think of the starvation in Europe, those difficult years of 1947, uh, literally famine before yeah. the Marshall Plan is is well. Did the U.S. get that right? And can we get that spirit back? The U.S., I think, got that right. Uh, in fact, they were quite helped by the Soviet Union and the way that Stalin got it wrong uh, for most of the time. The U.S. got it right through the Marshall Plan, through uh, NATO, yeah. the establishment of NATO and so on. And it needs that kind of commitment, which you saw from the Truman administration to get things going again.
I've got another two hours of questions. <laughs> right. Another time. Jonathan <laughs> Femby, thank you so much. Folks, I'm going to cut to the chase. His one volume in China is absolutely definitive. It is a sprawling history, particularly of modern China. His one volume on France is just the single best thing out there, particularly on the cultural aspects of what make the French different. And Crucible, 13 months that forged our world uh, with the emotion of awe after World War uh, two. It is always a joy to speak to Jean-Claude Trichet. There are too many things to talk about, including European central banking. Lisa Bramowitz would like a three-hour interview. I guess we can't do that today, uh, Lisa, but we will try forward with President Trichet on too many European topics. First, Jean-Claude Trichet, we must speak of the legacy of Paul Volcker. We know of his courage in the late 70s and the early 80s to make tough decisions, to force recession, and to bring down inflation. But then there was a story afterward, which was almost a steady hand uh, uh, forward through the 1980s. How does Europe find a Volcker-like presence for the next 10 years? Well, uh, let me me say, uh, Tom, how sad we are uh, to lose Paul Volcker until, I would say, his last days. He was still active. Uh, he was still very, very keen on giving advice and sentiment. And the last book he published, uh, Keeping Alice, has been absolutely incredible in terms of lessons to be learned from his own life. Uh, he said the three verities are stable prices, sound finances, and good government. And uh, he was not uh, putting his punches mm-hmm. Uh, to say that uh, on sound finance and good government, uh, practically all advanced economy were not up to the challenges. Stable prices, we are still living in the legacy right. uh, of Paul uh, as regards stable prices, which, which gives a measure of his own influence and uh, his own achievement. Can't say, can't say enough about the book Keeping Out It. Of course, this is Mr. Volker writing with Bloomberg News' Christine Harper. Great honor to have Christine write that book with uh, Chairman Volker in his final uh, two years of life. Jean-Claude Trichet, the new phrase. I know John Farrell wants to jump in here on it. Let me get the conversation started. How does Jean-Claude Trichet define fiscal space? Well, uh, I would say uh, a lot of countries have some fiscal space in the advanced economy and should utilize their fiscal space as resolutely uh, as possible with great determination in their interest and in the interest of the uh, continental and global economies. Others are in a totally different situation. And that's all the difficulty with the concept of fiscal space. At the global level as well as at the European level, there is a tendency to oversimplify the recommendation and to say either you should be very sound and reasonable as regards uh, the fiscal position or you should be as expensive as possible. But it's not correct to simplify, oversimplify the recommendation. For uh, for a number of countries like uh, Germany and the Netherlands, uh, as examples, 
the idea that uh, there should be a much, much, uh, I would say, uh, aggressive utilization of fiscal space is absolutely right and goes without saying, in my opinion. For others, it's not the same. And I hesitate on the United States of America to, to tell you my, my understanding because uh, the fiscal position is not signaling a lot of fiscal space in the US, at least in my view. Jean-Claude, let's try and focus on Europe, a, an area that you had to oversee as the ECB president since 2003. That was the last time that we had a monetary policy review at the ECB. Christine Lagarde is now undertaking that task. What do you think needs to be done? Well, uh, I think uh, she's right to, to look at it exactly like uh, the Fed uh, looked at it uh, in the uh, very recent period and still continues, if I'm not misled. Uh, so we... we uh, have a number of issues that are at stake, uh, which, which are the judgments that you are, uh, I would say, making on non-conventional measures that have been so uh, so heavily applied by all central banks in the world. Is it something that you would consider permanent and structural, or is it something which was really transitory, waiting for uh, the economies of the advanced uh, countries going back to, to normal themselves? Uh, you have also the uh, way, how do you run your definition of price stability? The United States um, Fed looked at it uh, through a certain angle and concluding provisionally, to my knowledge, uh, we don't change the definition of price stability 2%, but we, are, we will be more symmetric in uh, utilizing this, uh, this definition of price stability. So the, the same questions uh, might be asked in Europe. My own understanding is that the most important one is certainly the definition of price stability and how do you run that. And I would personally, uh, I would say provisionally conclude that a change of the figure would not be appropriate, personally. At the time, I was called myself uh, to go up to 4% instead of 2%. I don't think it, was a, it would have been a good idea, and today it would have appeared strange. Uh, I uh, don't espouse the idea that 0% or 1% would be better. It seems to me that we should not forget that the central banks are there to anchor medium and long-term expectation. And uh, that being said, uh, it's clear to me that uh, this uh, running of monetary policy with this definition should be symmetric, of course, and uh, I have no hesitation on that. But again, I don't want to anticipate on the meditation of the governing council. For our listeners worldwide, I'm pleased to say that joining us on Bloomberg Radio, Jean-Claude Trichet, the former president of the European Central Bank. Jean-Claude, the former president of the ECB, the one that came after you, Mario Draghi, used to say that for rates to be higher in the future, they needed to be lower now. That's the argument for negative interest rates for much of the last five years or so. Do you think we need to reassess that argument? Well, uh, again, the, the problem, uh, of course, it is clear that uh, extraordinary accommodating monetary policy, including negative interest rates, like in Switzerland at minus 0.75%, or in Sweden, or uh, in, uh, in some respect in Japan. All, all this, uh, of course, is extraordinary and uh, associated with a very, very abnormally low level of inflation and uh, also of growth in, in the advanced economy. Uh, there are, of course, 
negatives that are associated with this uh, negative interest rates or very accommodating policies, as well as positives. The, the positives, and I share the view of the major central banks that consider that the positives are higher than the negatives, but the negatives should not be forgotten. And therefore, I hope very much mm -hmm. that uh, these uh, very low rates will not be uh, compulsory for uh, eternity. Uh, and I hope and I expect that we will go back to a more normal situation. But that right. being said, it is, it is not an arbitrary decision of the central banks to embark on these accommodating policies. It is because the situation is very demanding. This has been wonderful. Jean-Claude Truchet, thank you so much, particularly those thoughts on Paul Volcker uh, this morning. He is the former president of the European uh, Central Bank. Pleased to say that joining us here in New York City is David Costin, Goldman Sachs' chief U.S. equity strategist. Good morning to you, Mr. Costin. Good morning. Optimistic about the year ahead. Give us the why. Why is the U.S. economy is continuing to grow, and that is important because the economic activity is what drives consumer spending. Consumer is 70% of the U.S. economy. That's what drives earnings, and that's what's likely to take the U.S. stock market higher in 2020. Above average in 2020, rising profit margins that will boost EPS by 5%. Where are the rising profit margins coming from? Where are you looking for that, David? Well, the rising profit margins really uh, is the fact that this year they came down by almost 65 basis points. It's kind of particular, but if you really want to look at what's happening, it's ultimately revenue growth. And revenue is the story. Uh, the unemployment rate now is the lowest in 50 years, continuing to fall, likely driving uh, overall business activity. Technology margins is what really distinguishes the United States equity markets from global markets. And the tech margins are now above 20%. So in some cases, you'll see them come down, but really coming down from very, very high levels compared with everywhere else in the world. I know Tom uh, is over there in London. Uh, there's very low profit margins over there, Tom. You want to have more profit margins come right. here. Well, I, I will say, though, there is some concern about a bubble in a specific slice of the stock market. I'm talking about utilities and REITs and other uh, interest rate sensitive sectors. Societe Generale uh, said that uh, the world's largest stocks that win from low yields are near their most expensive relative to the losers in at least 15 years. Do you think that they are set for a big sell-off uh, come 2020? Well, the dispersion of valuation is how you want to think about that. That's the separation, the spread between the uh, uh, highest valued stocks versus lowest valued stocks are as at an extreme. And that is typically associated with value stocks outperforming. But economic growth in that modest level, somewhere between zero and 3%, not a recession, nor are you having rapid expansion to that roughly the great rate of growth you've had in the last 10 years, that suggests that growth stocks do better. So in answer to your question, you think about value versus growth. Value should do better based on some of the metrics. Growth likely to do better. And so as, a, as an investor, portfolio managers should be thinking about growth at a reasonable price, kind of GARP, the proverbial GARP strategy. And the idea behind that and intuition is not to own the most expensive companies, which are in fact overvalued. I would certainly concur with that view. Um, but rather, also, but you need to also have some growth because value stocks uh, are, uh, are likely to trail if the economy continues to grow. So here we go, David. Increasingly, the consensus call is value over growth, your growth over value. Absolutely. Increasingly, the consensus call is the rest of the world 
of the United States. I don't hear that from no. you this morning. You're, Why not? Because the economic activity in the U.S. is still very strong. You've had 266,000 job print again. That's obviously last month. But the idea of the U.S. economy continuing to grow at north of 2%, call it 2.5% on average, the Goldman Sachs economics forecast is certainly well above the consensus. The consensus is like 1.8% or something like uh, 2.3. The idea of the way you make money is to have a view that's different from consensus and have consensus move towards you. Having a view in line with consensus isn't going to make you uh, necessarily a, a whole lot of money. The idea is to find the opportunity where there's a, there's a gap. What's your view on what the participation has been? through 2019. The S&P 500's up around about 25%. The Wall Street Journal came out with a well-read story in the last couple of days about the amount of outflows that we've actually seen from equity-focused funds here in the United States. Who's been buying? Who's been participating? So when we look at the major owners of the U.S. stock market, we can look at households directly, mutual funds indirectly, foreign investors, and pension funds. Those four categories own around 85% of the U.S. stock market. And so they both benefit to the extent that they are buying, even if they just own their positions. And their positions right now, uh, they're around the 85th percentile. Coincidentally, they own most of the market, and they are also, relative to their own historical allocations, very, very high. And that is, as a result, they've all benefited. And some good news for U.S. equities this morning. U.S. Chinese negotiators planning for a delay of the December tariffs. That's according to Dow Jones. So we do finally have a report. The silence over the last couple of days has been absolutely deafening. No official report, I have to say. But the Dow Jones reporting that U.S. and Chinese trade negotiators are laying the groundwork for a delay of a fresh round of tariffs set to kick in on December 15th. This is according to officials from both sides, Lisa. And futures uh, race losses earlier and are heading into the green ahead of the U.S. Open on the heels of that news. So spiking upward uh, in direct response. Up four points on the S&P 500. David Costin, a special thanks to you, sir. Goldman Sachs chief U.S. equity strategist on the year ahead and slightly contrarian, I must say, on some of those calls as well. Great to see you, David. If you study a Matt Winkler essay, he is the founder of Bloomberg News, our former editor-in-chief. I should point out the one that gave me that fancy badge that says Bloomberg on it. If you study the methodology of Matt Winkler, it is paragraph after paragraph of density of show. And he does that on tariffs, on trade, on exports, on imports of the United States of America And Matt, what is so extraordinary about your new essay on all the confusion of tariffs is smack dab in the middle, you go back to 1969, that was a few years ago, and say that the five-year average of global exports has finally declined. That's the ultimate price of this trade war, isn't it? It looks that way, Tom. Uh, You know, you can't uh, obviously be certain, but uh, everything points to a deterioration of uh, not only global trade, but particularly as it affects the U.S. and U.S. companies and industry. You do this, the methodology, Matt, that you use with your colleague, Shin Pei, is to really dive into the data and find what matters. In the density of this important essay, what was the thing that surprised you? Well, that was... Without a doubt, the biggest that suddenly uh, we're looking at the end of what has been a very long 
trajectory of uh, greater trade, which has benefited the United States. And one aspect of that is if you just look at the 500 largest companies in the world, you know, more than 50% of them are made in America. So trade has been the elixir for corporate America for more than half a century. And uh, now we're reaching a turning point, and uh, it's not uh, encouraging for American business. So, Tom, I am, uh, you mentioned uh, Matt's column. I'm reading it's probably 20 or so paragraphs. Every single paragraph has at least one number. So um, well, That's a Winkler. That, come that's, on, that's a heritage. A, that's a, you haven't read the Bloomberg way, Paul Sweeney. You've got guess a reading I, assignment this weekend. Boy, if I'm a cub reporter you know, at Bloomberg News, i got my work cut out for me. But So, Matt, my simple question is, is globalization dead, or is this just a blip in the road in what is a global trend? Okay, so China, by the way, continues to export, and the five-year rolling average for China is very different from the U.S. The U.S. is leveled off, it's unchanged, um, whereas China is increased. Uh, that suggests that trade goes on with or without the United States, and it also suggests that uh, relationships with trade are going to change, but that global trade will continue. It's just that the U.S. won't be the leader that it has been uh, for much of, uh, you know, the past 75 years. So, Matt, I mean, we have been a leader, you know, since the end of World War II. And I can't imagine that we're not going to be a leader going forward, despite what we're seeing right now. What's the, what's the risk to our economy um, if we are not, in fact, a leader? So you're seeing that in a decline in business investment, uh, for one thing, is that uh, the chaos that is created by these tariffs has essentially paralyzed uh, corporate America, and CEOs are not committing themselves to new plants and equipment mm -hmm. in the U.S. Um, farmers, we don't really have to talk much about because it's obvious that uh, they're in a perilous state because of the... Uh, and those cash payments aren't helping? Well, they're helping to some extent, but that's a version of crony capitalism, yeah. really. That's not what oh, farmers on, want. Yeah. Um, you know, the Trump Paul, tariffs is farmer, all about... That's Farmer Winkler growing tomatoes yeah. up yeah. in New Jersey. Um, Gentleman farmer. You know, and bilateral uh, deals uh, go only so far. Um, you know, when you're up against, say, the EU, which is, as you know, uh, more than two dozen countries, well, uh, that that's not... <clears throat> an easy uh, negotiating uh, position to be in because the EU uh, is going to be obviously right. multilateral and the U.S. can't negotiate with any of those countries yeah. one by one, has to do it with all of them, and that's Matt, not going to be easy. One final question, and this is just so important. There's an understanding Republicans and Democrats are essentially on the same page on unfree trade. Do you see in your study any window to get us back to a multilateral U.S. approach? Or do we, are we cornered by two parties that to stay elected, given the popularity, the, the spirit of unfree trade, they've got to go in that direction? Or can we reverse that? Well, if the pain uh, is great enough, and it may be uh, in the years ahead for American business, uh, the politics could shift. Right now, you're absolutely right, the politics have uh, gone 180 degrees from where they were 10 years ago. 
Yeah, okay, let's leave it there. Matthew Winkler, congratulations on an exceptionally important essay. This is an essay, folks, that you read paragraph to paragraph on the dynamics of trade, and I should point out, uh, at Bloomberg Opinion, and it dovetails nicely with my chart of the year, which is the incoming custom tariffs into the United States, which shows that this is a extraordinary six-standard deviation move, and I can't tell you how uncommon uh, that is. In Bloomberg Opinion, uh, Matt Winkler writing on uh, tariffs. Paul? Thanks, Tom. Uh, you know, let's get a little. Uh, it's quite a morning this morning with the impeachment. We had the uh, announcement of the two articles of impeachment this morning from uh, Democratic congressional leadership. Let's get some additional analysis. We welcome Emily Wilkins, Bloomberg government congressional reporter. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. What were your key takeaways this morning? So the key takeaways is that they have finally announced that we are going to be seeing two articles of impeachment, and they will be abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Uh, Chairman Jerry Nadler of the Judiciary Committee also mentioned today that he is planning on having the committee vote on the articles of impeachment. That potentially tees us up for a vote next week to impeach President Donald Trump. So, Emily, timing. So you think we will get uh, an actual vote next week? On the House floor, nothing has been officially announced yet, but there is a thought that they do want to get this done before December 20th. That's the last day of session for the year. Uh, if they do get it done, it then kicks over to the Senate for the Senate trial. Emily, just following up on that, so we're going to get a, a vote potentially in the House next week. Give us the timing that is expected from the Senate. Sure. So the Senate recently released their 2020 calendar, and the entire month of January is gone. They're expecting to use all of that month for this trial. Uh, it could potentially go into February as well, uh, but it, it sounds like it probably will be wrapped up near sort of the first quarter of next year. Do we, do we know what a trial looks like? I, I mean, I have a recollection of the Clinton trial and that, but do you have a visual of what the quote-unquote trial would look like? Sure. I mean, it's going to be very interesting. You're going to see all 100 senators in the Senate sitting in their desks, not saying a word. They are the jurors in this process. And so they are the ones who are listening to the arguments from either side and trying to decide whether right. or not they are going to vote. Well, mm -hmm. We got to drag you back because there's a lot to talk about here to inform the public, including myself, on really what we're in for, knowing that each impeachment is its original uh, character. Emily, thank you so much. Emily Wilkins uh, with Bloomberg uh, Government. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.